everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. We are going to be talking to journalists Yasha Levine and Mark Ames about the failed mutiny kicked off by the Wagner Group that has already been kind of uh, resolved. We're going to get into that, what it means, what it meant, what the current state of affairs there is now, and it's changing every second. So we'll try to keep you as updated as possible. It's going to be a great discussion, especially because Yasha Levine is himself Russian-American and Mark Ames spent 13 years living in Moscow on and off. But before we talk about the war, the proxy war in Ukraine, we're going to be talking about a war uh, here, right here at home, a war on free speech and political dissent. We're going to be talking to members of the Uhuru movement and the African People's Socialist Party. People probably know because we've covered this before but they've been charged with sowing discord and weaponizing free speech, and they've been accused of being Russian agents. And we had Omali Yeshatela, the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, on last year after his home and organization's offices were violently raided by the FBI. We're going to be talking to him and his co-defendant and a lawyer who's representing his co-defendant. But before we do that, I actually had spoken about this case with Glenn Greenwald. So I did a pre-taped interview with Glenn Greenwald, And it's about the life and legacy of his late husband, David Miranda, and an institute that they're forming for him. And it's a really important, moving interview about this really magical person that was his late husband, David. But because I know that Glenn cares so much about this issue, I took a couple of minutes of his time to ask him to talk about the case against the African People's Socialist Party. So first, we're going to hear this short video from Glenn, and then we're going to go back and talk to Chairman Omali Yeshatela, Penny Hess, and Leonard Goodman. This indictment is shows how easy it is to criminalize dissent. That's really what this is about. They don't think these people are Russian agents or working or taking orders from the Kremlin. It's actually very insulting, isn't it? Kind of patronizing to tell these black leftists they have no mind of their own. They're just like robots being led around on a string by the Kremlin. These are people who are against the war in Ukraine, who believe a lot of the claims that are being fed by neocons and the U.S. security state about Ukraine are lies. That does happen to align with the Russian government, but it doesn't make them agents of the Russian government. And yet they're now being charged with multiple felonies that can send them to prison for a long time based on extremely dubious attempts to draw a connection between the two. Yeah, and they're even admitting the Justice Department is admitting that this is a a free speech issue. It's just that they're weaponizing free speech. So they're, they they have to, I mean, I was actually surprised that they kind of copped to it, that this is an issue of free speech, but they had to pretend that, uh, I guess, because it's being weaponized, you're allowed to, to. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a gigantic I mean, first doesn't amendment that go against case the Constitution? here. So that is Glenn Greenwald weighing in a little bit on this case. And this is a case that he himself has covered. And uh, as as you saw from that, we think it's a major First Amendment issue. So we're going to get into that and more with our guests. So we are going to bring back onto the virtual stage Chairman Amalia Shatela, who leads the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru Movement. He's organized for Black Power for over 50 years, beginning with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, registering Black people to vote in the 60s. He has traveled the world building the movement for African unification and liberation, establishing relations of solidarity with anti-colonial struggles. We're also bringing on Penny Hess, who is chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, which she has led since its founding in 1976. She's built an international movement for reparations from the white community, working under the leadership and at the behest of the APSP. She's the author of the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, and another of the Uhuru Three facing federal charges. And we're bringing on Leonard Goodman, a criminal law attorney based in Chicago who is representing Penny Hess. He has won high-profile and precedent-setting cases, including 
in the U.S. Supreme Court and the Illinois Supreme Court. He is a published columnist and teaches federal criminal law at DePaul University. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to start off just by asking you, um, Chairman Yeshitela, can you just clarify what the relationship between the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement is? Well, in some ways, the Uhuru movement is actually older than the African People's Socialist Party. As you mentioned in the lead in, uh, that I was a SNCC organizer in the 1960s. And uh, in fact, I went to prison as a SNCC organizer, a free speech issue there as well, uh, uh, connected to the removal of a of a, of a eight by ten mural, a hostile mural, a racist mural, in the city hall of Saint Petersburg, Florida, and the snake was coming under extreme uh, pressure. As also, they were being arrested on bogus charges, framed up, and things like that. One time, they were accused of uh, in Philadelphia of of uh, someone the police claimed to have used some kind of um, mechanism that they can see through packages and that there was some uh, dynamite carried into the office. Not that any dynamite was ever used or anything. SNCC uh, was the organization that initiated in the anti-war movement, Hell No, We Won't Go, and made the declaration uh, Black Power. And so uh, SNCC, you know, came under extreme pressure uh, by the United States government as well. Uh, some people you're familiar with, like Stokely Carmichael and H. R. Brown, et cetera, from that era. Um, and then uh, because of when SNCC came under fire and other organizations similarly uh, were coming under fire, uh, I, while in prison during the, on the mural uh, charge, uh, uh, came up with the idea of building uh, an organization that would unite, uh, that would unite all of these uh, militant organizations, these uh, organ anti-colonial organizations, the one that was called the Hunter of Militant Organization, the acronym JOMO. And so JOMO created the Burning Spear newspaper. And then uh, following that, JOMO had the same characteristics as the Black Panther Party uh, uh, in many ways. Uh, and then following that, uh, seeing the limitation of just having a protest movement, uh, recognizing the need to be able to organize for political power, uh, for uh, capturing and wielding political power, we created a party, the African People's Socialist Party, and the African People's Socialist Party came about as a consequence of many of the groups and forces that we were uh, working with and influencing, uh, building JOMO. And uh, there were uh, these white people who uh, actually seemed able and willing to uh, unite with the struggle of black people in a real meaningful kind of way, uh, not in some kind of opportunistic way that was about building themselves as what we had been accustomed to. And we had a conference uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, in uh, uh, 1976, and uh, build uh, the African People's Solidarity Committee. It became a part of the Uhuru movement in the sense that it was influenced by the same politic, and also it was under the direct leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. So the Uhuru movement and various other institutions we've created since then, the International People's Democratic Uhuru, Uhuru Movement. Uh, so there are there are a lot of these entities, institutions that are characterized as the Uhuru movement, some with a direct organizational relationship and some not, but having more or less the same uh, general belief system uh, and self-determination for black people. And Penny, how did you guys meet, you and Chairman Yeshitela? Well, in 1976, so that was a long time ago, the uh, Chairman Omali was on a kind of tour and I was living at that time in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, the chairman was giving an event there and, and members of the African People's Socialist Party. And, and I did go to that with a, a friend of mine and the chairman announced that they were getting ready to build a solidarity committee, a committee for white people under the leadership of, of the African revolutionary movement and to work in the white communities. So I, um, you know, I went to a conference that they held in St. Petersburg, Florida, a few months later, and that was the foundation of APSC. And I, I have um, done this work in in Brooklyn, actually, and where where the the African People's Socialist Party held the first tribunal on reparations to African people in 1982. It was very, very amazing. 
and um, also lived in Oakland, California, and St. Petersburg, Florida. And now I live in here in St. Louis, but all is part of building and organizing for white reparations to do Africa. And what about you, Leonard? How did you meet these people? I, you know, I have heard uh, Chairman uh, O'Malley for years, um, and so I was familiar with him. I was not really familiar with, with the party. Um, but I got connected through some journalism friends um, when they were looking for attorneys. Um, I did follow the story of the raid uh, this last summer on their headquarters and got involved uh, shortly after that. And, uh, you know, I'm proud, proud to be part of this team and to defend these folks. And I really I think the government has picked on the, the wrong people because uh, um, they're tough and they're ethical. You know, th- there's really um, they believe what they're saying. You know, the, the allegation that they're Russian agents is so laughable to people that are their supporters that know that they've held the same views. And are, they're so consistent and so principled in their views for 30, 40 years. So, Chairman O'Malley, can you just in case people are new to this story, set up? Uh, trace how this kind of prosecution and persecution started. Um, you can start with the FBI's violent raid against your home and organization uh, to where we are today. Well, the, the, the striking uh, uh, thing about it, the notification that we were, uh, uh, there's a new development in just a casual, uh, ubiquitous FBI uh, intervention in our organizational lives was on July 29th of 2022 uh, at five o'clock in the morning. My wife and I were sitting uh, in St. Louis uh, around a table preparing uh, for the day, and she uh, was coming uh, to our office in in uh, St. in St. Louis, uh, where we were uh, initiating uh, a, a doula program for African women. Uh, St. Louis. As a, as a situation where there are something like uh, enough African babies die in the first year of life to, to uh, fill 15 uh, kindergarten classes. And so we had this doula program that we were working with, and I was actually preparing to go to the gym. We were just sitting around talking, and then uh, out of the dark, uh, this, this booming uh, uh, command uh, uh, came to us, hey, people who are in this uh, Residents come up with their hands up. This is the FBI. Uh, and then uh, grenades, these booming sounds, explosions started to go off all around the house. And uh, it was startling. Uh, at first, we weren't sure what we were hearing because uh, one of the things that we've sort of uh, beginning to get accustomed to was these alerts that hurt, that tornadoes are coming. And so you might hear these sounds Warning, and so we were wondering if, if that's is that, is that what we're hearing, and then it became clear that this is the FBI. And uh, I tried to uh, be the first to go downstairs, ask my wife to to call and let people know we were being raided, and uh, so she stayed up for a few minutes, and I went downstairs. I didn't know at the time that they had jammed our phones, so we couldn't communicate with anybody. So I went downstairs, it's, it's pre-dawn, and uh, when I got to the bottom of the stairs, opened the door, I was greeted uh, uh, by the sight of these military forces and camouflage uniforms and standing in front of an armored vehicle. And I was, uh, uh, and these, these laser targeting uh, device bouncing off of my chest, these laser sightings, you know, these things you see in the movie. And of course, you know, I was, I had to remember Fred Hampton at four o'clock in the morning in Chicago, uh, where they had come in and murdered him and murdered uh, uh, Mark Clark, who was there with him. And so I assumed they were going to kill me. That's, a, that's a, what I thought. I thought they were going to kill me coming downstairs. Uh, and so I followed the sound and the commands and my wife following me, she comes downstairs and she's greeted and almost hit in the head by a drone that goes up into the stairwell. Uh, the explosions are still going off. The, the, these military forces are also on the porch of the neighbors next door. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I get downstairs. Uh, I'm, I'm zip-tied behind my back. My wife, when she gets downstairs, she's handcuffed uh, behind her back. 
and uh, uh, trying to find out what happens, they tell me um, one thing: this is going to be in the news. You're going to this is going to be in the news, and and that uh, there's uh, uh, an indictment that's uh, being made of a, of a Russian national later this morning, and you've been named. And so that we have a search warrant, and I asked to see the search warrant. And they indicated they didn't have it right there, uh, but it was somewhere in the vicinity, et cetera. Uh, and uh, they couldn't tell me anything really because uh, the indictment was going to be later that day. So uh, uh, finally, uh, and then, you know, they <laughs> said I could sit on the curb and, and my wife, we could sit on the curb or just, you know, humiliating kinds of suggestions that they made. And, and uh, so finally, just, we didn't sit on the curb. So finally, just um, insistently asking, you know, if we were under arrest, can we, can we leave? And they finally said, yes, we could leave. So uh, then they had, to, they had to cut the zip ties off me, which is very difficult for them to do. And they, they took the handcuffs from my wife and we, Got it. <laughs> we got in my car uh, and 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 left. Uh, uh, and after one of them went upstairs to get the keys uh, for my car, and we left. And when we left, uh, we uh, discovered that that they were doing the same thing at the at, the, at our solidarity headquarters on on the south side of uh, of St. Louis. And then we learned that they had assaulted. Uh, uh, my house in St. Petersburg, Florida, because that's where I, I lived. Uh, nobody was there, but if you, you see the, the videos, you see that there are scores of agents who occupied uh, the house. They held us at gunpoint. They took uh, our cell phones. They took uh, any kinds of, uh, of electronic devices and things like that. Uh, and then they went to the home uh, in St. Louis of Penny Hess uh, and others and uh so a similar kind of thing happened to them. And uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, they tricked a, a young woman out of the house by claiming that somebody was breaking into her car and she needed to come out and take a look. And when she gets outside, uh, then FBI agents come from around these vans and, and what have you. And uh, they do the same kind of harassing thing to her, take cell phones. And, uh, and you know, these, these charges, you know, uh, then we learn about the charges. So uh, they occupied our residence and places for hours. Uh, and it was hours before I would come back uh, to my house and found on the table then uh, a search warrant. And, um, uh, and you know, stating, uh, uh, you know, that they were looking for certain things associated with this uh, charge that they were making against the Russian national. So, so that's, that's what happened. And uh, in April 18th, uh, they said that we were we were unindicted co-conspirators in some plot under the leadership of Russia that we were functioning as uh, agents of Russia and um, and then on April uh, 18th I think it was uh, some nine months later uh, they actually indicted us and uh, on May 2nd uh, Penny and I uh, and May 8th the third uh, uh, person. Uh, actually came to Tampa, Florida, where uh, we were um, we were uh, uh, handcuffed, uh, put in leg irons, um, stuffed in cells, and then brought before uh, a judge uh, and given what they characterized uh, as a, a signature bond of $25,000 and placed, our passports were taken, and um, uh, we have to uh, get permission to go any place, and at, at will, uh, an agent of the United States government can come to our homes. Uh, and we haven't been convicted of anything. It's like we're on parole. Uh, and anything that we do uh, that uh, the parole officer, if you will, or the agent uh, uh, is displeased with uh, can result in the revocation uh, of, the, of the bond. And could be jailed then, and otherwise uh, we're, we're we're set uh, to go to trial uh, on these charges. And, and Attorney Goodman can talk more about uh, that kind of stuff. And um, uh, we're set to go to trial. Uh, and I think with the maximum sentence, if I'm not mistaken, of some 15 years, which is like a life sentence for me. 
you know, uh, yeah. Because you're how old? 81. 81, yeah. Yeah. Can you explain to us, um, uh, Leonard, how this is possible? What they're First of all, what they're being charged with and accused of and how you can possibly um, accuse someone of weaponizing free speech. I thought that was something that was protected under the First Amendment. Um, I thought so, too, really, Katie. And um, they're charged under a pretty obscure statute. It's um, 18 U.S.C. 951. It's actually um, a companion to the Espionage Act. So it dates way back. It's rarely used. Um, It's designed to go after secret spies, operatives of a foreign nation in this country. Um, This is the first time it's been used directly to target dissenting speech and political speech. And it is true, the Supreme Court, there's a, there's a number of very good decisions back when the Supreme Court really did, did weigh in and care about these issues of free speech. Um, but these are precedent um, that, that say political speech is the core of the First Amendment. Um, so this, so I'm sorry about the dogs. Um, so this, what you're saying is correct. I mean, the, the use of a criminal statute to criminalize political speech and assembly, which is also part of um, their movement, um, is unprecedented, really. And it is certainly going to be an issue in this case. And what is it that they are objecting to that you actually did do? You know, Glenn was pretty, pretty much spot on. I mean, it really is their objection to the war in Ukraine. Most of the overt acts in the indictment um, are are targeted at free speech, um, organizing that they did, protesting, U.S. involvement. And the, the, the crazy thing, and the government certainly has to know this, is that their opposition um, goes back to before they ever met any with any Russians. I mean, the fact that Amali participated in a, um, in a conference in Moscow in 2015 um, had no impact on their, their opposition to the war. I mean, you can look at their, their um, positions. They have, a, um, a, they have a newspaper and a website, uh, the Burning Spear paper, and you can go back and see articles. I mean, they, they were against the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders. They were against um, U.S. involvement in the coup in 2014 that overthrew the, through the democratically elected president of Ukraine. Um, so their, you know, their position on this is quite clear. And um, I would have to imagine that the government knows that. So how they can make the allegation that they suddenly uh, became Russian operatives in 2015 when, when the chairman was invited to, to participate in a conference is... Um, it, it's really shockingly weak, this case, and very dangerous as well. And I'll just correct one thing the chairman said. I think the maximum sentence is 10 years. And, uh, but, you know, we, we certainly are, we, we are going to win this case. There's no question in my mind, and these folks are never going to back down. Um, and the chairman is a healthy, healthy guy. He is going to live more than 10 years, I, I can tell you. But, but, um, he doesn't doesn't look his age, and he's a vigorous guy. But that he shouldn't he shouldn't serve a day. And seeing them seeing them on the day that they were granted bond, being brought into the to to the uh, courtroom in uh, in chains was um, was really quite distressing. Um, so um, anyway, we, we're, there's some very good lawyers on this case, and and we're going to fight fight along with these brave uh, activists. Well, since we're talking about what it is that you apparently got into so much trouble for, do you want to lay out your view of what's happening right now uh, in Ukraine, a view that, as Leonard just pointed out, is something you've held um, for, I would say, decades? Well, if you look at Ukraine, uh, our view is a, is a world view. It's not just some specific thing that's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have... Uh, a theory about uh, the existing uh, social system itself and how it came in into being, uh, uh, and that uh, the whole capitalist system is, is, is born rests on a pedestal of of uh, colonialism, colonial domination by what is what is now characterized as Western powers, 
and uh, that this thing is fracturing in a very serious way, that uh, there's uh, obvious distress and re- the, the whole uh, world and political and economic uh, 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 social system is undergoing a tremendous uh, uh, transformation. The, the world, the com- economic and political configuration of the world is going in an incredible transformation. And uh, what happened, of course, in, in uh, 1917 with the Russian Revolution, uh, that's when the assault on Russia began first. And uh, all the colonial powers, including the United States and, and Japan, invaded Russia. <clears throat> and the objective then, uh, because Russia, uh, well, I don't want to go into all of that history, uh, but it invaded Russia. And subsequent to that time, uh, the uh, the foreign policy of the United States and 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 Europe, uh, Western Europe, has been to isolate, uh, contain uh, Russia uh, in the various iterations uh, that the Russian government has represented itself. And first, you know, with the Soviet Union, and later on, uh, uh, Russia, and uh, uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, in 2014, uh, this uh, this creeping. Uh, movement by uh, by the United States to the borders uh, of uh, of uh, the Russian to Russia's border. They had already done Afghanistan. That uh, Brzezinski bragged about. Uh, the National Security Advisor for James Earl Carter had bragged about uh, uh, contributing to the destruction of the Soviet uh, uh, Union. This this Afghanistan uh, thing that they had begun. You know, uh, some years ago, I think it was '84. They may have gone into Afghanistan, and uh, 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 and so this whole process of moving uh, closer and closer to the Russian borders, encircling Russia, that that has been obviously a part of the domestic, I mean, the uh, the foreign policy of the United States, and uh, it resulted uh, in in about 2014 uh, the coup. Uh, that was backed uh, by uh, the United States, uh, that overthrew an elected government, uh, and uh, that was uh, friendly uh, uh, to Russia uh, than uh, the so-called Western powers would have it to be. And uh, so they initiated this coup. They, there's Zelensky uh, government as a consequence of that, and, and, and involved in this government. I mean, it's, it, you know, for people who who proclaim to uh, be concerned about such things as fascism and Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're a critical component of the, of the military uh, forces uh, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, uh, not the majority, but critical uh, uh, sector. And uh, so, you know, uh, so Zelensky is greeted as this great hero uh, and trillions, certainly scores of billions of dollars of uh, U.S. money, weaponry, training forces, all kinds of uh, resources going uh, into Ukraine. And so suddenly uh, we see that this love affair that's happening between the United States uh, and Ukraine uh, uh, that, you know, uh, is moving against Russia. And it's not that we are Russians or anything like that, but we know something about the nature of the social system and we can see uh, this fracturing that's occurring here. And uh, uh, we know that uh, this war is something that strengthens oppression and not uh, uh, not uh, help oppress people anywhere in the world to be free. It strengthens a really incredible uh, kind of uh, reactionary situation on a global level. And so we had to oppose it and, and, and say we oppose and say also we know why it's happening. And uh, uh, it's not like we're going to send troops to, 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 to you know, to fight you know, uh, uh, in Ukraine or something, but we oppose it. And, and to say, this is what is happening, that everything they're saying is a lie. And then billions and billions of dollars that they can't spend for education, they can't spend uh, for uh, uh, even giving people minimum kind of insurance, or healthcare, et cetera, these billions of dollars uh, that's being used to make this war and, and, and thousands of people are dying. Uh, as a consequence of that, we can't say something about it. We can't, can't go along with that just because we're here. So we protest that. We, have, we say that we don't agree with that. And let's tell the truth. And when you open up every door uh, for the truth to be told, let's open this door. Let's the truth be told. I mean, when I was younger, uh, uh, there used to be this saying uh, in the United States, uh, you go to school, that uh, a free speech is just uh, just. Critical, and the United States believes in free speech uh, because uh, 
this uh, battle of ideas. Let the ideas, you know, uh, contest with each other. Uh, but you don't hear that anymore. Now you hear uh, things like uh, people being radicalized when they see the wrong things on, uh, you know, on social media, uh, weaponizing free speech, etc. There's a, you know, everybody's being listened to. Everybody. There's no such thing as privacy, a presumption of privacy in the lives of the people anymore. I don't think people expect privacy in this country anymore. I mean, it's so pervasive, this intervention in the lives of the people uh, by uh, a government that's everywhere. You know, so and it's not just something that so-called leftists uh, are being affected by, but people on across the political spectrum uh, in many ways are responding to this intervention by the government that attacks the right people to think things differently and to act different and to create this special uh, force that uh, now has been designated by law, even uh, as a protected class who, who carry guns in our communities and can can raid our homes and things like that. That's an extraordinary kind of situation. And, and to sit and watch that happen and not protest it uh, is begging uh, to live under the worst kind of oppression. And black people have come through it, live with it every day, and I'm damned if I'm going to be able to be silent in the face of that. So that's the criminal speech, apparently. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, yeah. Could I, could I just add, I mean, it, I, yeah. I think you should... To, we should all be frightened about this type of prosecution, and it has nothing to do with agreeing with the chairman's views or not. I mean, right or wrong, the First Amendment, you know, what's the saying? I mean, it's the marketplace of ideas. If, if yeah. you think he's wrong, then you should uh, debate him, uh, yeah. not criminal, not put him in a prison. And, yeah. you know, so <laughs> and I think <laughs> I agree, you know, and I think that's uh, the. I think it's a statement of inability to win uh, 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 ideologically and politically. They will come with guns and lock people up in prisons and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. And Penny, why do you think they're going after all of you? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I just want to say, first of all, that my I have worked under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party for over 40 years. And I have learned everything that I know and understand about the world from Chairman Omali Shatoa. And, you know, that turns history and the reality right side up and puts all of those on whose backs we sit as the leadership of towards winning a new world and overturning this, this very vicious system that we live in. So that's very enlightening. I just want to say that. But I, I think I would say two things. One, that they have always done this to African people who stand up for political and economic power in their own hands, such as Marcus Garvey, such as Paul Robeson, such as, you know, just going all but even even before the 1960s, before Malcolm X, before what they did to Fred Hampton at four o'clock in the morning and all of the the COINTELPRO and the FBI murders and assassinations of the 60s, even before that, they were attacking, imprisoning, destroying movements, movements for power. Like the chairman you know, says, there are different tendencies within the African, the African movement. So I think that's one thing. And I think also that our job is going into the white community to organize other white people, uh, for reparations based on, not based on a, a payoff or charity or anything like that, but based on this is what's owed. This is stolen labor, stolen resources from stolen from African people who themselves were stolen. And, and this land is stolen from the indigenous people and genocide carried out against them. And, you know, all around the world is the plunder of Africa, of Asia, the Middle East, all of this that has brought the resources to the colonizers, which is the society that we live in. So that is our job. And I think that part of what they wanted to do was attack the leadership of the African liberation movement and try to attack white solidarity. You know, with it, they attacked the Solidarity Center, which is a building, as the chairman said, owned by the African People's Socialist Party, that we use on the south side of, of St. Louis in a very 
prominent spot that can be seen with a banner that says unity through reparations, which so many, many white people, you know, that we do outreach, we do door to door, we, we do tabling at the farmer's market and the park and all that kind of thing. And so many people express just deep unity with that banner, with this, you know, with the work that, that we represent in this city where, where Mike Brown was murdered by the police and there was uprising and so many other atrocities perpetrated against the African community here. So, you know, this, I think that they have tried to intimidate white people, but in fact, we're growing, we're building. And this whole leadership of the chairman and the, and there's, there's the Uhuru Solidarity Center. All right. That that's a great picture. And so, um, yeah, so this whole hands off Uhuru movement that, Chairman Omali Shatella has formed and chaired by Mwesi Odom, who's just a dynamic force from the party as well. And um, we're just winning, like the chairman is saying, across the political spectrum, even across the board from so many organizations and individuals. Millions of people literally have seen the chairman on Democracy Now! and even on Fox Fox News Channel. I think, what, what is that? Like a million people on the original press conference and just, you know, just comment after comment. People have donated, which people can do at handsoffuhuru.org slash donate, but, you know, just raised a significant amount of resources, 200, over 277, or something like that, $1,000. And well, there's more because lawyers are very expensive. And so, yeah, so this it has been an outpouring of, of profound support. And I think that a lot of people in the white community, you know, know about what this government has done to African people and want to rectify that, want to have an honest relationship. And that's reparations. That's the essence of what that means. So may, may I say something, uh, Katie, please? Sure. Just uh, two things. One. Uh, we didn't do what they said we did. So we are not guilty of what they said we did. That's one thing. And uh, the issue of free speech is real, real question, but <laughs> what they've, they've contrived something, they've created, they've fabricated a narrative. Uh, uh, it's like, uh, it's like uh, creating a, a, a disease uh, or something and, or, or I've heard they created so-called medicine and created disease to, 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 to meet, you know, the requirements of the, of the market for the medicine. So I think, I just want to say that we didn't do it. That's one. And secondly, I think uh, one of the uh, things that made this uh, attack on us, uh, something they felt they had to do, is because for the first time in history, what the African People's Socialist Party has done, the Uhuru movement, is fracture. Uh, the absolute uh, solidarity of the white community with the attacks and aggressions against black people. Uh, and there's probably a better way to say this, uh, uh, because obviously uh, the solidarity movement could not exist if, this, if, the, if the unity was absolute, but there has been no avenue uh, through which, there's been no vehicle through which uh, white people have had this kind of opportunity uh, to express their unity with black people in opposition to how, which is what happens to African people here and around the world, and to take that to the African community. Most of the people call themselves white leftists want to come to my community, but we, we don't need you in my community. <laughs> this, the problem is not here, the problem is over there. And so to have these forces who are working in the white community, and, and you know, the solidarity movement is in at least 140 some odd cities in this country. And Penny says that the issue is talking about reparation. Yes, it talks about reparation, but it talks about reparation in the context of talking about the struggle of black people for our power, for self-determination, uh, to move away from uh, uh, this notion of African people uh, having uh, to, uh, uh, to be, be welfare slaves, even what you call it freedom, and, and the whole people live as welfare slaves, self-determination. There's, there's no dignity. Uh, in being a welfare slave. There's, people uh, have to be able to uh, have advantage uh, to the resources that we've created in the world and, uh, and the ability to exercise uh, our capacity to feed, clothe, and, 
and house ourselves and to create our own and future and define, you know, our future. So that's, I think this, this thing is actually like part of the Achilles heel uh, of this whole system that people refer to as racism, except we crash that. Now you don't have that absolute solidarity of white people just, and we don't demand that white people love black people. We don't demand that white people uh, uh, like reggae music and do all this other kind of stuff, you know, because that's got nothing to do with the issue of colonialism. And even reactionary white person can be an anti-colonizer, can be against colonialism, can be for the right of black people to have self-determination, to have uh, to be self-reliant. Even the most reactionary white people can believe in that. Uh, and so, we, I mean, we, there's going to be a big uh, uh, disagreement on so many many other questions, but that's something that I think many people have the ability to unite with. So really quickly, because we have to wrap, I just wanted to highlight one question, comment here. John McCarthy says, why have no presidential candidates spoken against this prosecution? Why aren't they challenged to every India media interviews, any of them? Every time indie media interviews any of them. Okay, so I'll make sure if I have more, I'll ask Cornell West about this. I should have asked him about it. But if I have any more, um, uh, I'll ask them. And just really quickly, can you just um, update us on uh, the uh, arson event and the sanctions that you're facing? Yeah, uh, what has happened is uh, right across the street from my house, the one that they attacked on July 29th, right across the street in the same place that the fire uh, uh, that the uh, armored vehicles uh, were located, there are fire trucks there uh, on December, I think it was, was it December 27th, December uh, sometime, uh, because uh, the church, a, um, a big church, we have something like 50 or more uh, economic development programs, and we have, we would have this church on the contract uh, for where we're going to put other programs, and uh, that church was mysteriously torched. I mean, an inferno right across the street from the house. We can't say the FBI did that. We can, uh, but uh, the fact is that obviously you didn't see them do it. And then uh, banks, uh, where we uh, uh, were, were part of our movement, has been involved in over many, many, many years, 20 or more years. We've never, never missed a payment. We've uh, always paid on time and sometimes before time, et cetera. Uh, and uh, they, they, they closed our accounts. They even closed Penny's personal account. And then they demanded that within a matter of several weeks that we give them a 70000 pay off a $70,000 mortgage. And so two banks have done uh, something to that effect. And uh, so they treat us like a, a foreign country, you know. Uh, the objective is to make sure that we fail, that uh, we cannot, uh, these programs that we put in the community, because one thing about the programs is that if we can do this, if we can put a $106,000 basketball court uh, in a community that looks worse than Ukraine in terms of being bombed out, if we can uh, start uh, creating these businesses and rehabilitating, why can't the government do that? And I think that becomes a contradiction for them as well. So uh, uh, it's not just that we disagree, but that we offer alternatives, real practical alternatives. And so we're under assault uh, in so many ways, just like the government is. Well, thank you so much. We'll put the links to your organization uh, in the description. We also have a super chat from Quebec. Thank you, Claude. We have a bunch of people from all over, from Portugal, um, uh, different countries and cities. So Irish-Americans, uh, Scottish-Americans, uh, Portugal. So uh, thank you all so much for joining. We will keep uh, updating the audience about your case. And um, yeah, make sure you come back. Thank you, and thank Leonard. It's good to see you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, Attorney nice. Goodman, this is a oh. bad man. Uh, uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a hell of a lawyer. This is part of our dream team, so to speak, to coin the phrase. Dream clients, too. Thank you, Katie. Yes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you guys so much. Okay, guys, that was great. Make sure you like the show. I forgot to do the usual announcements. Give a like, give a thumbs up. Also, um, if you can become Patreon supporters for just $1 a month, you get to make this show happen, be part of the show. It literally couldn't happen without your support. Uh, for $5 a month, you get basically like twice as much content. You get extended interviews. You get extra interviews. I have a great interview with um, Richard Wolf. That's Patreon only. Uh, this thing that I did with Brianna Joy Gray is Patreon only. 
I have a short thing with Glenn Greenwald talking about free speech that's Patreon only. So, so many reasons. And uh, if you're watching this live, you're in luck. You'll get to see this whole thing uh, for free. If you're watching this later, part of this will be maybe Patreon only. And to access that, you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And as Brad reminds you, please remember to hit the like button, share, and subscribe. Hit subscribe and then the bell. So we are moving on to our next segment. So excited to have these two guests coming on to the show. Uh, we are talking to none other than Yasha Levine, who is a Russian-American journalist, uh, and also uh, Mark Ames, a journalist who spent 13 years on and off in Russia, and also is the host of the co-host of the uh, Radio War Nerd podcast, which is a great podcast. Uh, and Yasha is also the co-host of the Russians podcast, another great podcast. So Yasha and Mark, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Hi. Katie? Hey, Thanks for joining. Here. Look at you, Yasha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so What's summer. A- Somewhere in San Francisco. Uh, you know? oh, yeah. God, yeah. I'm outside because I, I, there's too much noise inside. So I got a little, I got a little, a little gas. I got a little gas heater. Uh, you can't nice. see it; it's just over there. But and I got like two socks on. Wow. <laughs> you know, in I'm, San I'm, Francisco, I'm, man, it's I yeah. always love that. It's, it's cool. all foggy and co- and cool. Yeah, right? that's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, it's pretty early here too. So yeah, good to be here. Um, Thank you. We are. We wanted to have you on to talk about what is happening right now in Russia. Um, there was obviously this um, Prigozhin, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, tried to do a little mini mutiny. Then that failed. That was on Friday. Can you? There's so not much so happening, many. but not so many. Okay, <laughs> no, so not so will, many. Yeah, I mean, you know, fifteen thousand or twenty. God knows how many. Right, not mini mutiny, a mini yeah. coup, major yeah. mutiny or mini coup. Right. Thank you yeah. for correcting me. I'd say it was a you know ride for justice is what I'd call it. <laughs> That's what we <laughs> called it, right? Yeah, yeah it was the march for justice, the million mercenary march for yes. justice. Yeah. Uh, you mean since the since the mutiny slash coup fell apart, or, um, well, it, you know, uh. uh Prigozhin, uh, his for, his forces, they they made sort of two thrusts: one on Rostov Nadanu uh, in the south, which is where the um, a lot of the military command is for the main, um, you know, for the, for the war in Ukraine. Um, and I, I think they were already heading that way, or they're very close by anyway, um, so it was easier to take that. And then another detachment, I think you know, again, you don't know, we don't know a lot. But let's say it could have been a, a few hundred, you know, vehicles worth of faster vehicles um, were heading up towards Moscow, and they were go- getting up there fast. I mean, you would see, oh, they they went through checkpoints in, you know, uh, Voronezh, and uh, then through Lipetsk, and like they, they were they got, I think, within two hundred kilometers of Moscow, um, and it was it was sort of like this high stakes um, negotiation. It was a way of negotiating and getting Putin's uh, attention um, because Prigozhin had been releasing increasingly wild, um, rage-filled, kind of increasingly crossing red lines videos on his Telegram channel. And, you know, I, I think um, what that said was, I mean, everyone would say he's very close to Vladimir Putin. Well, if he was very close to him, he wouldn't be doing these videos for the public. I mean, he, clearly Putin hadn't been picking up his calls for quite a while. And um, and then apparently, according to the story, as, as his troops were getting closer, uh, Putin tried calling him and couldn't get through. Uh, he basically said, I'm busy or something. And that really pissed off Putin. Then he panicked and tried calling Putin and couldn't get through to Putin. I, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I like this story, even if it's not. And, uh, and then um, Alexander Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, came in as the, uh, I, I think it's the first time Lukashenko has been able to do something where he looked like something more than just a Putin's cuck, like his puppet or something, you know, where he was able to take a, um, you know, a manly role in all this and, um, uh, and, and to kind of assert himself a little bit. So he got on the horn with uh, uh, Prigozhin and Putin 
and um, help diffuse the situation. And again, we don't know the terms of the deal. Like what we do know is it did diffuse it, whatever whatever the deal was. And we do know that Prigozhin is in, in Minsk and there are some Wagner um, uh, mercenaries or fighters, whatever you want to call them, that are in Belarus as well, but we don't know how many. I mean, is it like... What are you? What are you gonna say, Yasha? I don't know. They're in a specialized camp. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah, like, huh? uh, I mean, I would like imagine. Uh, imagine right taking here, that over. It's like, hey, yeah, there, we we got a little camp for you right here. Yeah. Uh, just yeah, just just to, yeah, go go to sleep. You know, don't worry. Yeah, yeah I know you must be tired from, from that march. <laughs> you know, I would not yeah, go me, to that let camp. Me tuck yeah, you in. <laughs> exactly. Well, you um, know, I I, I want to comment on something. I mean, just you know, I mean, I because no one. Okay, well, no one really knows what is actually going on or what, what like what is behind Prigozhin's march. I mean, we can only sort of make guesses, but. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, Mark, but, you know, one thing that that was surprising to me, you know, going and kind of listening to the 30-minute speech that he made, you know, that he released on Telegram, video speech, recorded speech, you know, basically a day before he did the, before he went on Rostov, he kind of kind of made this ultimatum or something, or get, get, said his grievance speech, kind of like what Putin did with the war, right, in Ukraine. He right. did his grievance speech, yeah. waited a day, and then just, oh, okay, no one's saying anything? Oh, no yeah. no one's coming to me? Okay, all right, I'm serious now. And then he, and he went on Rostov. But if his intention was to get his bosses or get Putin's attention and kind of get in Putin's good graces and say, Hey, Putin, like, uh, I'm, you're not, you're not picking up the phone and you got all these assholes who are, you know, above me who are, you know, who are, you know, basically wrong, who are corrupt or, you know, who, who are doing everything wrong and they're messing everything up for you. He didn't praise Putin. I don't remember. No. I don't, he didn't praise Putin at no, all. He, he, he kind of, no, um, it's, it was a very strange thing. Yeah, it was. I mean, he was, he was doing the sort of the czar's ministers are bad, but the czar is good thing up until that moment. And he then, say, yeah, but, but earlier he, he was, yeah. or, or earlier he wasn't he was. necessarily saying Putin is good, but he was making a, he was saying that Putin is being misled, you know, know, which is that, yeah. that sort of thing. Right. And, yes, but, yeah. he, but he did, he did get more directly in Putin's face at the very end there. Yeah. Um, we actually yeah. have a video I wanted you to to react to, a short video from Reuters. Brad, do we have that? Head of Russia's Wagner Group mercenary organization is, for the first time, publicly rejecting Moscow's official justification for the war in Ukraine, saying the reason for the invasion was based on lies, running directly counter to President Putin's own statements, and marking a new milestone in the months-long feud between the Wagner founder, Evgeny Prigozhin, and Russia's top military brass. This is part of Prigozhin's video, which was posted on Telegram. Why was the war needed? The war was needed so that a handful of scumbags could have a blast and get PR attention showing how strong the army is. The war was needed not in order to return Russian citizens to our bosom and not in order to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. It was needed for one star with additional embroidery so that one mentally sick man could look good on a coffin pillow. Shaigu lives by the principle that a lie must be horrific for people to believe it. That's when the lies come. Prigozhin's referring to Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shaigu a constant target of his criticism. He's often accused Shaigu and other military leaders of incompetence, but rejecting the core reasons for the war is new for Prigozhin. He says Shaigu's deceiving President Putin and that the war was also used to enrich the ruling elite. Prigozhin also specifically uses the word war in the video, not the phrase special military operation used by the Kremlin. Prigozhin's enjoyed unusual freedom in publicly criticizing Moscow, although not Putin himself. Whom God, where do Reuters hire, hire these people, man? This is like the most wild, exciting, I, I mean, you know, horrible and everything, but this was the most exciting news event of for the last year, and that guy just put me to sleep. I mean, I, like, yeah. what the hell's wrong with him? Man? I mean, him. I mean, I, th yeah. I I I find the translation. I don't. It's, that was a very I know. He also clip. he also left out like how really incendiary. It didn't yeah. sound nearly as incendiary as also, the original. Yeah. Right? It feels like it's a, well, that was a mashup of two different clips because the the middle translation seemed to come from somewhere else. Uh, anyway, but I mean, more, more or less, it, it's it, it's it's correct. I mean, that's what he said. That's the in fact the thirty minute speech that I'm referring to, in which he explicitly said that. I mean, one of the things that was interesting is that he said. 
there, Russia was not under threat, that there was no threat of Ukraine invading Russia. The, one of the justifications that, that, that Russia gave for this invasion was that, you know, Ukraine was planning an imminent attack, an imminent invasion of, of Russia. And so this was done as a kind of preemptive preemptive attack to protect Russia. Preemptive war. Yeah, uh, yeah preemptive war. You know, we all know how well those go uh, in America. Um and so, and so, he, yeah. So he he says that that was wrong. I mean, he he sort of what he does is he sort of says that it, one man basically launched this war. You know, uh, Shaigu, which is Sergei Shaigu, who is the minister of defense of Russia, of who is he's been you know feuding with for for openly for months now, and uh, essentially, and he's, and he's yeah. thought to be a potential successor to Putin too. Yeah, which that's is an important yeah, that's, thing to note here. Yeah, yeah. So he's, I mean, yeah. he's Putin's boy. I mean, pretty clearly. Yeah. And so, and so he's been warring with him directly. And so, and so he's sort of laying it at his feet, saying. He's been lying to Putin. He's been lying to the Russian people about the the, the nature of this war and the threat, the, the the threat that you know Russia was under, which you know was didn't exist essentially. And so it was pretty interesting. It was kind of like uh, you know he's kind of making I don't know like an observation that I guess I I've made you know uh, in the beginning of this after this war started you know that this didn't seem like to be I mean this was a war of choice. This wasn't a war of necessity. You know in the sense of like it was. It, they chose to do this not not because they were defending themselves, you know, immediately, but because they thought it, you know, they could. There were other there are other plans for, it. and so it was pretty interesting to to see him say because at least you know not everything. I don't think it was one man launched the war. I don't think Shaigu is the guy who's you know masterminding the war. I don't know what yeah. you think, but I think that's no, him, because again, that's, not. that's just part of his sort of that's part of his feud. Yeah. But like, but the that 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 other part about you know basically calling bullshit on 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 the reasons for the war, you know, on this little in his in his own little kind of limited way i think is actually pretty true you know uh strikes me as at least 75 percent true so it was surprising and yeah it was it was just useful for him at that moment to say truer things um but i mean what what look what was he facing um wagner did the hardest fighting of the war for russia i mean probably certainly of any battle and certainly of the last eight months of the war uh, you know uh, at least which is the battle of Bakhmut. Um, and and uh, fulfilled a job, a really grim as hell job for Russia to uh, fulfill a war aim. And essentially it was this. Um, last year in the first uh, you know month of the war and then you know and beyond that, far too many um, young Russians, young Russian males were dying. and this, threatened to make the war very unpopular. And what is the, you know, what is one of the big uses of um, private military contractor mercenary groups like Blackwater and Dincorp and Wagner and so on? One of them, I mean, there are many uses of them, obviously. First, you know, people can stuff each other's pockets. Um, uh, you can do things more off books, maybe half in, half out, uh, plausible deniability. But a really big thing is that changes the way people look at the war and casualties. Like, for example, um, I've been making this point lately. Um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the two major wars that the U.S. has fought in the last 20 years, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, I saw a, a study recently on this. Um, about 7,000, maybe slightly over 7,000 U.S. servicemen died, and uh, over 8,000 private contractors for U.S. private contractors died. So that's 15,000, but we never see that number. And it's a different number than 7,000. You know, 7,000 is bad too. 15,000 is like, whoa. Um, it's never counted along with it. And, and, you know, they're not real. In American society, they're not officially really people. They're either people who, hey, it was your choice. You were there for the money. A lot of them are foreign nationals. We don't actually have the number because um, because some of them are foreign nationals and, and the reporting is different and that's by design. And so, and, you know, Wagner did that sort of stuff for Russia, for some of its overseas ventures, both to make money and to spread influence and to fight more. So they, you know, they, they were deeply involved in Syria. They're involved in uh, some conflicts in, in Africa. And when Wagner soldiers die, it's not, it's not a PR problem uh, because Russians aren't outraged in the way that they would be or have been if it's servicemen. So, you know, as an example, so going fast forward, um, late last year when Prigozhin came out publicly, it was always, they were always playing this game, but he came out publicly last year and said, yes, 
I'm the leader of, of Wagner. And they started showing him giving speeches in prison yards, you know, these like uh, Sparta 300 speeches and uh, offering these people a chance to get out of prison, fight for Mother Russia. And what it wound up being was a way to attrit Ukrainian regulars using Russians who don't matter and don't contribute to the economy, that is convicts. So thousands and thousands of, you couldn't do this to the regular army, at least that mechanism hadn't been worked out yet. Um, so you used Wagner for that. So Wagner, you know, became this fighting force. You know, again, we don't know how big it was, let's say anywhere from five to 10,000. It swelled up to 50 to 60,000. I'm throwing numbers, again, going by different studies, making my best guess, uh, of whom 40,000 were convicts. Um, it's possible that, at least 10,000 of those convicts died, uh, 10 to 20,000, you know, uh, wounded, missing in action. Some were taken POW. A lot of them deserted. Um, but they killed a lot of um, Ukrainian regulars that Ukraine needs, that, they need, that Ukraine needs to fight Russia, that Ukraine needs for its economy. And so it really was, in the really grim math of this war, um, a successful operation in Bakhmut to attrit Ukraine and to hollow them out some up somewhat before the big expected counteroffensive. And you've seen how the counteroffensive has not gone too well for Ukraine so far. You know, we, I'm not going to predict anything, but that is how it's gone so far. And once their job was done, and, and Prigozhin clearly had a sense this was going to happen, and so did his fighters. Once the job was done, they were going to be disposed of. And that's exactly what happened. A, a few, I, yeah, I don't know when the first order came out, or the rumblings of it, if it was a few weeks ago, um, or even maybe even a bit earlier, that Wagner was going to be folded in, you know, by decree into the Ministry of Defense. And this is what he was rebelling against. And his videos were getting more and more hysterical. I mean, you go back to even May, late May, when he was get, posting videos, also questioning the rationale for the war, saying, you know, the point of this war was to demilitarize Ukraine, quote unquote. And look what we did. We turned them into the, they're, they're now, nobody knew Ukraine before. Now they are the Romans or the Greeks. They're as famous as the Romans or the Greeks. They had 20,000 good fighters in February, 2022. Now they have 400,000. So we didn't demilitarize them. We militarized them. He's been saying this. He went to a new level, as Yasha pointed out. He definitely went to a new level. But he went to that new level last week after Putin officially came out with the Ministry of Defense, with Shoigu, and said, I'm putting my name behind this, that Wagner's done. And next, you know, by July 1st, everyone has to sign a new contract with the Ministry of Defense. And, and so he lost his business and he, you know, he saw people die. He was, he was right up there in the front. I mean, you saw, Yasha, that video of him with all those corpses, you know, that, yeah, yeah. that would he, he was just, yeah, he, yeah, exactly. And he's just, yeah, he's, it's interesting. He's taken a much more for a guy who's been stay, stayed in the shadows all these years and, you know, has de denied that he was any, has anything to do with the, the Wagner group. I mean, he's gone completely, you know, personal and is like, and it seems like he hasn't really left the front, you know? I mean, the videos are gruesome with him just walking around like a field strewn with corpses and he's like, almost like picking them up and like, look, look, this is our boys, you know? This is what Shaigu is doing. It's almost you know? unbelievable. Like, I've never seen anything like that before. He is quite a character. I'll give him that. Yeah, he is. He's like a character that you'd never, you're never, I mean, I don't think Russia is ever going to produce characters like this. I mean, these people were like four in the nineties, essentially, you know, and like, yes. and you know, I mean, just to go from just like a petty criminal in the eighties, uh, you know, in, in the Soviet Union to being this sort of like, basically a hot dog salesman in this like really gnarly kind of outdoor market in, in this, right in the center of St. Petersburg, kind of notorious for being, you know, this sort of like, oh, you know, which market he was, he was working in. Oh yeah, it's famous. Aproxin Dvor. It's like oh, okay. it's uh, yeah, right yeah. off of yeah, it's right off of Nevsky Prospect. Yeah, Nevsky, okay. It's still even even today. It hasn't fully like reconstructed, and it is still a market, you know. And it's right. I mean, so I can I can imagine in the nineties it must have been just a totally mobbed up. I mean, Petersburg was the roughest town in Russia then, like way rougher than Moscow. And from going from that to basically starting these pretty successful kind of like nineties style restaurants to the point where. You know, George Bush, when George Bush and Laura Bush came through, he made their tour of Russia in 2002. They were on one of his boats. They went on Prigozhin's restaurant boats. I love that. So you can actually see Prigozhin always hanging out in the background with Putin, Ludmila, you know, 
Laura Bush just kind of hang out, be like, being like the kind of the master, you know, of the ceremonies. He's just sit, waiting on waiting on them, you know, to being a guy just running around the battlefield, just completely insane, you know, like picking up dead bodies that are ripped ripped to shreds. It's, it's quite a trajectory, man. And like, and I, I do still, I mean, he's he. I think it did drive him crazy, probably, you know, um, because he's again he he seemed to have agreements with Putin directly. I mean, he didn't state it, but the fact that he was so reserved about kind of praising him and 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 in in some kind of way it showed me that he's he was pissed off with he's pissed with putin yeah yeah and what does putin's response tell us i mean a lot of people are saying oh this is you know the walls are closing in it's finally all basically i feel like this becomes like a rorschach test where everyone who wants putin removed says this is proof that he's on his way out everyone who likes putin says Oh, this is proof that he's strong because look at how he handled I've it. I've seen people say stronger than ever. Yeah. Like, what are you talking or like, about? This is just his genius moves to like, you know, yeah. clear the, Five get the filth test. out of the military yeah. structure. Yeah, it's like his genius moves. So what is it really? And you tell me what you think, Yash. I'm curious what you think. I'll tell you what I think. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.